Welcome to the Ringer NBA Show. I'm Chris Vernon. Joining me every Tuesday from TheRinger.com is Kevin O'Connor, a.k.a. Kevin O'Bomber, a.k.a. Kevin O'Concert, a.k.a. Kevin O'Comment. Kevin! <laughs> Verno! All right, so first things first, uh, did you watch the College Football National Championship? Yeah, I watched the second half. I didn't watch the first half. I was, I was watching The Bachelor. Sorry. I watched NBA this morning. But national championship and bachelor last night. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. Like Thank that you. is a Thank you. Co- well, co- college fo- college football has very little re- relevance to many in the Northeast, right? I mean, it's just not the thing. You didn't grow up around it. Yeah, I, I would say that's fair. Well, anyway, congratulations to Alabama on their national title. Let's get to the NBA. Last night, how appropriate you are. Uh, you must be living right because you write about Jimmy Butler, and then the story of last evening is the Minnesota Timberwolves trashing the Cleveland Cavaliers. Let's get to Butler first. And (laughs) obviously, first of all, the trade in the offseason was roundly criticized. When the trade was done, most people thought that the Chicago Bulls got fleeced, that that's all you had to give up to get Jimmy Butler, who's by most accounts, one of the top 20 players in the NBA. In fairness, the trade does not look nearly as bad now, but if the idea was he could have a massive impact on Minnesota and turn them into a team, right? You're adding a great veteran to a team that already looked to be on the rise. A lot of people thought they might take the step last year. That didn't happen, but this year they did add Jimmy Butler. They did add Todd Gibson. They added Jeff Teague. I mean, they added some veterans to their young core, and they have really taken a big leap forward. And a lot of it is, or I would say most of it, is because of the addition of Jimmy Butler. You wrote about that. Great timing because they killed the Cavs, as I said last night. But walk me through your perspective on Butler and why that has changed the Timberwolves outside of just hey, they added an awesome player. Most of it is simply, like you said, they added an awesome player. But I, I think with Jimmy Butler, he's he's the type of player who really does set a tone and an example for some of the younger guys on that team. And that's important. Tom Thibodeau has consistently, you know, I've, I rewatched like a lot of his pregame and postgame press conferences ahead of this article just to kind of look for quotes, but also just to kind of get perspective in. And he continuously like hits in some of the same topics. You know, Taj and Jimmy have changed everything for our team. You know, they they've the way they lead. You know, the the all around games that they have, their defensive impact. Blah 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 blah. He continuously hits on how much those guys have changed the culture for that team. And Jimmy Butler's the main guy. I mean, his performance this last six weeks or so. You know, early in the season, he didn't have to score much. They didn't ask him to score much, but. He's been unbelievable lately. It's really one of the best stretches of his career. And you look at Minnesota surging on defense. Butler has consistently, for the most part, been terrific on that end of the floor. Carl Towns has stepped up lately. Um, He's been wonderful on that end. And that's something where Towns is, I think, the key to them taking the leap to the next level. Um, But the fact is, is where they are now is really, really good, and that's largely due to the addition of Jimmy Butler on top of Carl Towns being just a magnificent offensive player and Andrew Wiggins, who is still trying to figure things out. I think it really is mostly just they added an awesome player, and um, 
Jimmy just happens to be uh, developing into a significant leader for the team, too. Yeah, the, the interesting thing is Wiggins, because this was a big year for him. We wondered how it would all fit together. So you have Jimmy Butler, who's averaging 21.5 points a game. You have Towns averaging 20. And then you have Wiggins, who's a tick under 18 points a game. But Wiggins is shooting 43% from the field, 33% from three. He's got a PER of 13.5, which is pathetic for a player of his talent level. It feels as if this is clearly not impacted uh, Jimmy Butler and his ability to produce um, in a major way. Towns probably could do a little more, but honestly, he's averaging 20 and 12 uh, so far this year. Wiggins is the one, and it's a it's a downturn. Obviously, he is a less efficient player. Um, than he has been. And so how does Wiggins, we wondered how it would all fit together. What do you make of Wiggins, um, his numbers, and kind of how he fits with the other two who have kind of separated themselves as the two big horses from Minnesota? So with Wiggins, it's kind of a joke in some ways that he takes about two more shots per game than Towns. Um I just think Towns is a far superior offensive player, and yet Wiggins really is in control on that end in terms of uh, he leads the team in shot attempts per game, right? Um, I think with Wiggins, he's he's gotten better, right? He has gotten better since he was a rookie, since his time at Kansas. But at the same time, and I discussed this yesterday with some guys on Wolf's Wired podcast, and there was, the point was made where it's like all the weaknesses that he had in college – still manifest and hurt him negatively today in the NBA, whether it's defensive inconsistency, even though you see the obvious upside for him to be a lockdown, you know, high-end defender, whether it's, you know, inefficient shot making off the dribble or probably less less than what you would hope for from spot-up three-pointers. Wiggins just leaves so much to be desired because his potential is so obviously significant. I mean, you don't need to be any basketball genius to recognize that, oh, he could be really great. And yet he's kind of become the player who's like, who's the taking the baton from Jeff Green, as in the guy who should be better than he actually is. And Wiggins can get better. I mean, I don't think any of us should give up on him necessarily. What he is now at age 22 isn't what he will be, hopefully, at age 26. And at that point, maybe he'll be more like the complete player. But at the least, like to kind of answer your question about like what does he need to do, he's going to be able to defend and hit spot-up threes. I mean, at a minimum. I mean, but does that make him a bust if that's all he is, Chris? I don't think so, personally, but I'm, I'm curious your take. As, as a number one pick who was traded for Kevin Love? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> like if what he is, if what, let's say at age 26, what Wiggins is, is let's say he becomes a good good spot-up three-point shooter, and he's still just average off the dribble, but he still ha- can have some big nights, right? Like, we've seen him have big big explosive scoring games, and he's more consistent defensively. I think he could be a really good player. Then he's a, a really good non-all-star. He's he's Rudy Gay. That's what he is. Rudy Gay. Hmm. Honestly. I remember someone, I, I forget where I read it or where I heard it, but someone compared him to Rudy Gay before the draft. And it was like, that's insulting. Our boss, Bill Simmons, said it on his podcast. Bill did on his pod. Really? Oh, compared their physiques. Rudy Gay's a really good player. He's never made an all-star team. He averages, you know, I mean, during his prime, you know, he's a 18 to 22 point guy, has all the ability to be a great defender and is not. Obviously, he has reinvented himself post-Achilles and is playing with San Antonio now in a role. Um, but for the better part of his career, he was not on a lot of 
winning teams per se. Um, and I just, uh, yeah, I mean, so yeah, that, I mean, that would be a disappointment if that's, if that's the ceiling for Andrew Wiggins. I think people thought Wiggins was going to be a multi-time all-star, uh, when he came into the league and, and expectations were too high. I mean, okay. With that 2014 draft, I had Embiid ranked number one until the back injury before the draft. Then I bumped him down a couple of spots. I had Parker one, Wiggins two, Embiid three. And like, I felt like Wiggins and Parker were so overvalued or, or expectations were so far too high for those guys. And I liked them a lot, but I remember. I just pulled up the article right now. One of my friends who writes about the draft, Dean Damascus, uh, he wrote an article titled Andrew Wiggins, an ordinary player in an extraordinary body. And that doesn't that that was written in February 2014. Doesn't that sound exactly like the player we see today? An ordinary player in an extraordinary body. I think that's so. I wonder if they are going to, you know, we're going to get to the trade deadline stuff and it's not that far away. And you wonder if they will try to maneuver because one of the things, clearly, and you have talked about the amount of minutes that their team plays, but they're going to need some depth. They just are. I, I mean, I guess you can you can play this thing out and just run them into the ground and play them 40 minutes every single night. But the interesting thing with, like, say, Wiggins, per se, right, is they don't have any other wings, Kevin. Yeah, they have a weird team. It's the strangest roster construct. Because there is nobody else, right? They have, once you get past, (laughs) right? Once you get past Wiggins and Butler, there is literally nobody else that plays a wing position. I mean, you've got Jamal Crawford who comes off the bench and tries to get buckets. He never plays Shabazz, Muhammad, who's a bigger wing. Like, they don't have anybody else. It's all bigs and guards. I know. It's all bigs and guards. It's funny because I, I talked to an executive before the season about this. He's like, Tibbs has the weirdest roster. He said exactly what you said. It's like eight big men and like six guards and then the three wings. One of them never plays. Butler, Wiggins, and Shabazz <laughs> Muhammad. It's, just an, it's an odd roster. And if I'm a Wolves fan, I'm wanting executive Thibodeau to be targeting wings in the draft and in free agency this summer. Yeah. For our older uh, listeners out there, cause I know this will be a, this will be a reference. It's a little too, uh, it's probably, you, you were probably too young at the time, but when Nintendo came out, one of the first games on it was ice hockey and you could build your team. Like everybody knows you either took the fat guys or the skinny guys, like the medium guys. You didn't have any. So that's like, that's kind of what the Timberwolves remind me of. Right. It's just a bunch of <laughs> it's a bunch of fat and skinnies yeah. and none of the middle guys <laughs> that are on that are on the, that are on, that are on the team. Um, yeah. And what what about Wiggins long term? Do you commit to him? Long term, if you're the Timberwolves. Oh, they already re-signed Wiggins. No, no, no. I understood. But again. Oh, you mean like not dangle him in trade talks? Yeah. I mean, you don't have to keep him, right? Just because you re-signed him. I'm cold-hearted, man. I'd I'd trade almost anybody. I I think very few players are untouchable. And Wiggins certainly is not untouchable. I wouldn't hesitate to trade him anywhere if the deal was right. If I'm executive Thibodeau. I think you could get a lot of value for him, right? I, I don't do. know, man. I don't know. I mean, I think, okay, it's like we kind of hit on earlier. He's 22. I mean, let's not lose sight of the fact he's super young, right? Mm-hmm. He's still really young, and he was a guy when he came in. I think the expectation was that he would kind of take a little bit to get into his prime. He wasn't going to be a guy who could hit right away. 
and granted, I say that was the expectation. That was the personal expectation. Um, and he's a little bit further behind than I would have hoped for, but he's still only 22. So yeah, you're right. Like he'd have interest, but at the same time, like, whoa, that's a lot of money. Minnesota's paying him, dude. Right. That's a lot of money coming up. (laughs) Do you, do you think that Andrew Wiggins ever makes an all-star team? Probably not. I mean, I I wouldn't bet on it. So no, I'll say no. It wouldn't surprise me if he did, but I'm not, I'm not betting on it, especially because look, he's got Carl Towns ahead of him. Towns is potentially one of the best big men in basketball. He's already one of the premier offensive scorers at the position. And then he, then Jimmy Butler will be ahead of him as well. So no, probably not. But at the same time, you definitely shouldn't rule it out. I mean, the guy got, the guy has so much talent. Well, how about you, Chris? Would you bet on Wiggins making an all-star team? No, no, I would not. But I would say this, I would consider with this particular team, maybe maneuvering around and being active at the trade deadline, because I don't think it's out of the question that you could see them in a, in a West finals, possibly. I mean, I know that it is a foregone conclusion that it is going to be the Rockets and the Warriors by most accounts. Um, Everybody always forgets about the Spurs, but the Spurs are going to be hell to deal with as long as they can get guys healthy back by the playoff time. But given that we never know the way this stuff's all going to shake out and that one injury could change the course of all of it, if I'm Minnesota, I look at it and go, man, there's a, there's there's some there's playoff series where if we catch a break or if somebody gets injured on the other team, we could very well have you know, the best players on the court, at least two of them with Butler and Towns out there. Um, They just don't have any depth. And I do worry that if you play 82, if you play this thing out, 82 games, and they're all going 40 minutes a night, and then you get into one of these or a couple of these playoff wars where you're going six and seven games, it, it can really catch up to you. And so I would kind of, I would kind of look around and decide, Hey, Maybe I can try to find some wing depth because the wing thing is a, is a, is a big deal regarding who you are going to have to play. Um, if you look and you say, all right, the best two teams that we would feasibly have to face are the Rockets and, and the Warriors, well, guess what you need? I mean, you, you need guys that can run around. Yeah. You need guys that, <laughs> I mean, you need wings. And I, I actually look at them and I think they're pretty damn good. And, they just need to tweak this roster a little bit, and I don't know if they could win the series, but I'll tell you this, they could give some of these teams hell because, I mean, Butler and Towns, are these are two great, great players, and I don't think it's out of the question that they could perform at a ridiculously high level in a playoff series. And so, I don't know, man. I would, I'd be active if I were them, for sure, because I think, I think you take a shot at it. Even like before they make a big trade, what I hope – Tibbs does and like this is something we touched on last month when we were you know ranting and raving about Thibodeau's rotations Marcus George's hunt has started to play some and he's played well I mean he's been pretty good for Minnesota in the time he's been allowed I would like to see two-way player Anthony Brown get an opportunity I think he would help Minnesota's spacing on the offensive end of the floor and I think there's a chance perhaps that he could make a little bit of an impact defensively um, I, I would like to see Tibbs experiment with him I, I think Anthony Brown is a guy that could really help that team you mentioned the need for a wing maybe it could come internally with a two-way player like Anthony Brown at least try it out for a handful of games you know throw them out there and see what you have i think i think you know tomorrow that the uh, g league showcase begins and i think 
I think a lot of these two-way guys deserve an opportunity. Um, and a lot of them are getting it. Um, and hopefully Anthony Brown gets an opportunity at some point because I, I, th- I think he could help Minnesota even beyond uh, where they are and ne- where they're at now. And they're in a terrific position. The Sabaz Muhammad thing's wild. I mean, talk about falling totally out of favor. Oh, boy. I mean, he was not. It's sad, listen, really. I mean, but yeah, but I mean, like, look, last year, Kevin, he was getting 19 minutes. He shot 48% from the field, 34% from three, which isn't great, but it's not abysmal. Right, got you ten points, three rebounds off the bench in twenty minutes. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I thought I thought he was okay. I thought he was fine. It's certainly useful. And Tibbs has no use for him this year. None. <laughs> I think if you'll hear a Wolves fan say to you, he is completely useless. I, I think he's the player where Wolves fans seeing him every night with his low effort defense his selfish ball stopping offense it's like sometimes maybe you see a glimmer of that usefulness like you just alluded to but i think for the most part he's just turned into just a a low-end player and it's sad because he was once a top high school recruit solid role player in the nba with opportunity provided um then he denied the big 40 million dollar contract over four years and now he's a uh borderline minimum player on the back end of a roster it's 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 kind of sad to see his decline happen so quickly so they would say it's a it's just a lack of effort he doesn't bring it it's a lack of a lot of stuff he was not a bad player yeah i thought especially his second year in the league you know he averaged almost 14 points a game four rebounds 49 percent from the field 39 percent from three i mean it looked like he was onto something right i mean in year two i thought yeah, like wow it did. It this did. guy this guy can be a nice piece for somebody. And then it turns out like that was just like a small sample size season. <laughs> like that was the one that was the one uh fake one really. The rest was the reality. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is you just this is the hard part about evaluating players on horrible teams, right? Like I've said before, somebody has to score. Somebody has to get these numbers. And you have to decide whether or not how relevant those are. Is this a an extremely good player who is putting up the or is it you know, is it Michael Carter Williams who's putting up a damn near triple double every night? His rookie year, <laughs> and you just don't know. It's like somebody's got to get these numbers. So, you know, if you're on a rat team, your numbers, how much relevance do they have? Let's talk about one other player that you wrote about recently, and that is Devin Booker. Interestingly enough, on a team that is loaded with lottery picks, Booker is the one that has uh, stood out in a massive way. For Phoenix, And you kind of wrote about how they're not having that great of a season, but I think most people foresee Devin Booker being a big-time star uh, in the NBA. Obviously, an amazing scorer, uh, to say the least, and he has proven that so far. When you look at, if you are Phoenix, and you are trying to, if you're trying to figure out your path going forward, who do you commit to? Obviously, you have Booker as a core piece. Do you view anybody else on that team as a core piece? Somebody that you look at and you go, all right, I I want to build around Booker and like fill in the blank there. Is there anybody else? Yeah. Dragon Bender. I okay. still think Bender's going to be really, really good for a long right. time. And I mean, I think you're going to throw in Jackson in that I think you're gonna throw in Chris in that I mean if you're talking about the guys that you want to build around like you want that to be you know kind of your four guys Booker Bender 
Jackson and Chris. No guarantees Chris turns into the player you want him to be, but I think he's somebody, at least for the time being, that you're, you're hoping turns into that. How about Warren? I love Warren. Yeah, he's cool. He's cool. It almost reminds me of the point you just made, though. Let me preface this. I like TJ Warren a lot. Loved him in the draft, and he's turned into a really good player. He's a legitimate 20-point-per-game scorer. He can score from every level of the floor within the three-point line, and that's kind of the issue. I mean, he just hasn't turned into a three-point shooter, shooting 18% from three this season on only 62 attempts, but he's never been a three-point shooter going back to NC State. So is he the type of guy where you can survive with him leading your team and scoring? Probably not, but maybe maybe if, like, let's say, let's say, Three years from now, the Suns are a top four team in the West. And TJ Warren is the spark plug spark plug scorer coming off your bench. Isn't isn't that like his ideal role? I feel like he'd be pretty good in that. A guy that comes off the bench and just gets buckets? Yeah, get buckets for you. I mean, right now, I mean, if if he's one of your leading shot, you know, getters, I don't know if, if that's ideal just because of his his natural inefficiency um, without being able to score from three-point range yeah i mean i guess if it is uh if it's a killer that him being out there doesn't let you stretch the floor but i look at it and go sometimes when i watch them and they've got the and they've got the guys that can shoot threes obviously they they throw out lineups sometimes where it's where troy daniels is out there and devin bookers i mean great three-point shooters or guys that certainly have to be honored all the way out to 30 feet and then i look at it and go God, what a luxury to be able to have a guy like that that can operate in the space. Like if you create him space, I don't think that it's a I don't think everybody has to be able to shoot threes. Hell, I watch a lot of these games and a lot of these guys shouldn't be shooting threes that are. Right? There's a guy that doesn't. He knows exactly what he's good at. And given that there's so many guys that are now shooting threes and bigs are stretched all the way out to the three-point line, I kind of like the old school guy that can that can get buckets in other parts of the floor, and I don't think it's to a tremendous detriment. I like him, man. I really do like Warren. He is a hell of a scorer. Oh, no doubt. He was an unbelievable scorer. His uh, sophomore, junior season, whatever it was, his last year at NC State, he he was unbelievable, and he's he's essentially the the same guy now with his ability to score from anywhere. I mean, he's ha- has one of the best floaters in the game can pull up from anywhere in mid range. Would like to see him get to the line more, but at the same time, I mean, he, like you said, Chris, he's, he's turned into a great scorer, And I think he's a nice, nice fun part of that team. And look, there's no, there's nothing stopping him from potentially adding a three pointer either. Um, I, I think that's always a possibility. Yeah. He could potentially be a, a, the poorest of the poor man's DeMar DeRozan. And maybe I'm a little higher on him just because I, 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 I have a real warm spot for these guys that are different. You know, so many of these guys are all doing the same thing or trying to do the same thing. And some guys are doing it at a, a super elite level, and then a lot of them can't do it at all. And so I, 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 I do. Shooting threes. Yes. And like the guys that they don't do what they are good at the most. Right. And so there's a guy here in TJ Warren who is unlike almost anybody. You know what I mean? I honor that he he's not trying to be something he's not. And if you can get buckets shooting two pointers, get buckets shooting two pointers. He he does what he's good at. I have a question for you, Chris. You know, kind of in relation to TJ Warren, but also just kind of big picture. I was thinking about this recently and it's something I want to write about. So like I I fear blowing the topic. Like at what point 
you look at the Rockets, they attempt 51% of their shots from three-point range. So over half of their shot attempts are three-pointers. You have someone like Charles Barkley saying analytics are ruining ruining the game. All these teams shooting threes is ruining the game. And I don't agree with him at all. Not even a little bit. I think I think the game is more beautiful than ever right now. However, is there a point where if every team is theoretically shooting, let's say, more than 40% of their shots from three, at that point, if everybody's trying to become a three-point shooter, and that's the only way teams are playing, at that point, could Charles Barkley be right? Or is it is it the type of thing where you don't even think that's a scenario worth thinking about because it won't get to that point? And that's kind of where I am. I don't think it'll get to that point. I'm just curious about your thoughts because in relation to TJ Warren, uh, jacking up, not jacking up a lot of threes. I think it depends upon. Okay, I, I'll give you. I'll give you a for instance. Right, there was a game that I was at on Friday night. It was an ESPN game, so a lot of people saw it. The Grizzlies played against the Wizards, right? And they shot like I want to say it was like thirty something threes in the game, which is preposterous. They're not any good at it. You know what I mean? Like they're not. <laughs> and and I'm there, and I regularly see a team who is attempting to be like the rest of the NBA, but the trick is they're not good at it. They're not good at shooting three-point shots. And so it is, too, their great detriment. I mean, they end up shooting, what, uh, they end up shooting 33s in the game against the Washington Wizards. And they are they have been, throughout the season, one of the worst percentage teams shooting threes in the NBA. And so I do think you are seeing even bad teams shooting an immense amount of threes. Um, and it goes back to the whole Warren example, right? Like, what are you good at? Like, maybe you, maybe if you, if you can't hit these shots at a high percentage, maybe you shouldn't be taking a ton of them, right? <laughs> and so the fact that you are seeing teams, even bad teams, taking an immense amount of threes and attempting to turn players into something they are not. It is happening all over, and that's where I think it hurts. I'll give you a great example. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago regarding the Paul George trade. Sabonis, look at the percentage of shots he shot from three last year. It is preposterous, absolutely preposterous. And now you look and you see what he's doing in Indiana, and it is not, to me, some massive demerit if you aren't shooting threes a lot or you aren't a big that can stretch the floor all the way out, which is better? Would you rather have Sabonis doing what he's great at or attempting to turn him into a guy that can st- uh, Sam Perkins who can stand out there and shoot threes? And so you've seen his efficiency tick up. You have seen his perception around the league tick up um, this year while playing in Indiana because they're allowing him to do a lot more of what he's good at. So whether it is an individual or it is a team, I look at it and say, there's a lot of forcing this onto guys that frankly should not be doing it and teams that should not be doing it. And that's where I think it can be to the detriment when you don't accentuate what your team and your individual players are great at. And the sacrifice is because in the, in, in the event of wanting to shoot more three-pointers. 
So here's the thing, right? With TJ Warren, he just signed four-year, $50 million contract that starts kicking in next season, right? So he's a guy that you invested a lot in as part of your future. Kind of maybe as the bridge um, from you know where you're at now in a rebuilding phase to a contending phase. So you invested a lot in TJ Warren. He shoots 43% or 42.8% from mid-range, right? So the equivalent of that from three-point range is 28.5. So you only need to be better than 28.5% from 3-4 to be worth more than what TJ Warren is for mid-range. And I think that's kind of where I disagree with you because I think if you're <laughs> the three-pointer is simply worth more. I mean, it's it's basic math. So if you have a 43% mid-range shooter, that's that's good for mid-range, but it's not good on the entire floor. So I think, you know, to tie it to Sabonis like you did, it, it's kind of the same thing where the, the thing with Sabonis that's better now is that he's getting more shots at the rim, you know, in the restricted area. He's a great finisher, and he's going to become a great finisher um, in the restricted area as he gets into his prime. But the thing is, is you can't let him live in the mid-range. You just can't. He has to, at some point over his career, extend his range to three-point range. That's just the way it is in today's league. I mean, what would Marcus 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 would still be a really good player if he didn't shoot threes, but he took his game to the next level by extending his range. Brooke Lopez did the same thing. I mean, it's it's important. I would argue that that is that you look at that and it is on it is on the sheet of paper and it says, okay, here's simple math. Here's what the, you know, if you shoot this percentage from mid range, then shooting this percentage from three point range is the equivalent. But that is only on paper. That is not taking into account everything else that is happening within the context of the game. That's where I would argue this, not to turn this into a whole watching the game versus just what it says on a piece of paper, because I am a fan of the ability to look at things numbers wise and then put them into practice. But you do have to consider how it affects an offense, how it pulls him away from the basket. So the offensive rebounding is now being foregone, which is another thing that teams have become pathetic at is they have foregone offensive rebounding at all to their great detriment. In my opinion, they have decided they want to just get back on defense quickly. So whether it is offensive rebound, stop transition offense though. And the other thing is getting to the line, which is a massive, massive thing. You now have where if you can get into that bonus quicker into these quarters, sometimes you'll watch these games and a team is into the bonus within, I don't know, three, four minutes into the fourth quarter. And now for the rest of the quarter, they're getting to go to the line and you get those fouls called by going to the basket, by playing close to the basket. You can't just have everybody playing 30 feet away from the basket and wanting to shoot threes because a piece of paper says, well, if you shoot 20% from three, that's equivalent of shooting this from what like you're not. Yeah, you're, you're, I mean, if that's the that, answer to all of this, then what you, I mean, is foregoing the way basketball is being played and all the other things okay. that go into account. This is kind of the point I wanted to hit on when I asked you about, is there a point where 
it becomes too much where if every team is playing like the Houston Rockets, right? If 30 teams are playing that style where it's very few passes <laughs> in a single possession where it's just a lot of high pick and roll. And granted, they do a lot of other stuff too, but that's like the primary source of their offense. It, if it gets to that point, I do think there will be a lot of people who nodding their heads in agreement with everything you're saying. I just don't think it's going to get to that point. I don't think it's ever going to get to that point. I think more teams are going to start shooting more threes, but it's never going to get that extreme. Uh, I just think you got to adapt or you're going to perish. That's what you have to do in today's league. So Marcus Soul extended his range because he had to. Dwayne Dedman extended his range because he had to. That's what these big men have to do in order to thrive in today's league. Because you, it, you, you're right. It, it, is, it is more than just the numbers, right? 30% from three equals 45% from two. It's more than that. But the thing is, is it is more than that in the sense that you're giving more space for other players to drive to the basket. Look at James Harden, you know, with Houston this year. Look at the space Stephen Curry has when they're playing five out and he needs to get to the basket. It's it's literally like one-on-one in an open gym sometimes. Like just literally just two guys on the court. That's it. That's how much space is in the paint. And that's because of the space that's provided. I mean, like Andre Robertson is one of the players where he's TJ Warren will never be Andre Robertson, right? But in a potential playoff series, perhaps having a TJ Warren or a Marcus Smart type of player, a team will gamble and defend that guy like Robertson. So having a poor spot-up three-point shooter can hurt your team in those big situations that matter most when maybe the defense is going to gamble a little more and they're going to clog the paint or maybe overhelp on certain players like star players because of a limited shooter, whether it's a big man or whether it's TJ Warren. Uh, I, I think I, I think you got to be able to shoot threes. It's probably the most important skill. It will be fascinating to see because you may or may not know that the third from the bottom in the league in attempted threes is Minnesota, and fourth from the bottom is San Antonio. Yeah, so, you're right. So, so we'll you're see. Right. right? These are two of the best teams in the league, and they're two of the bottom four in terms of shooting threes. And Minnesota has a terrific offense, and San Antonio's in the top 13 or 14, maybe 15, without Kawhi Leonard for the most of the season. They're different. Those teams are different. But at the same time, at the same time, though, you still look at that team, and for the most part, they still have spacing. They have a guy like Carl Anthony Towns who can shoot from three-point range. The Spurs still have LaMarcus Aldridge who can extend, and Pau Gasol as well. They still have big guys who can space the floor. They might not take a lot of threes, but they're still spacing the floor. So I think you're right. Like Maybe you don't need the frequency of the attempts that some teams have, but I still think you need the spacing that is provided from three-point shooters being on the floor. I'm just saying you don't have to have five of them. To create that spacing, you don't have to have five of them. That's oh, the for thing. sure. Yeah, I don't. I don't think you do either. I mean, Houston. Houston. I mean, the, the most extreme example where you know in the league. I think I would grow tired of it if every team did it. But I, I just see them as the one unique, weird team that's just doing something to <laughs> extreme, obscene levels, and it's fun to watch. It's it's a lot of fun. They would have to be in the NBA Finals or win it. That would be the way that you would see more extreme. It's a copycat league. And so if you saw them get to the NBA Finals or you saw them win the NBA Finals, because there's still enough old school guys in the NBA 
of which Charles probably speaks for, that sit there and go, that's, that's all fine and dandy, but you can't win doing that. And then they're yeah, right. They feel like they're proven right when San Antonio destroys them on their home court to send them home last year. Now, obviously, this is a different version of Houston, but right that when push comes to shove, like th- th- you saw last year, San Antonio was running them off that three point line and they refused to take mid range shots. Right. They just there was no counter. It didn't feel like. Well, that, that's where Chris Paul is going to help. If you empower those guys to take mid-range jumpers late in the clock, it's still a valuable shot. And I think I think oftentimes that's what that's what almost gets misconstrued sometimes when it comes to the isolation. And this was something I wrote about before the finals last season where it's like the mid-range jumper isolation plays still have value in end of clock situations. So, you look at Houston, they just had Harden before, right? So you mentioned how the Spurs really limited everything that Houston wanted to do. They only could lean on Harden in end-of-clock situations, but now you have Chris Paul, um, who's one of the game's best, and I, I think, I think that that'll that'll help help them a lot when it comes to playoff situations. Having two instead of one. All right, Kevin, we'll get right back to it. But first, I want to remind everybody that the NFL playoffs are heating up and the Ringer Podcast Network has you covered for all your pro football needs. They're churning out NFL content six days a week during the playoffs, so you'll definitely want to tune in. We kick off our coverage on Sunday nights right after the games with rapid reactions from former NFL GM Mike Lombardi and Tate Frazier on GM Street, available only on the Ringer NFL Show podcast feed. On Mondays, we've got Guess the Lines with Cousin Sal on the Bill Simmons podcast. On the Ringer NFL show. You can hear Robert Mays, Kevin Clark, and Danny Kelly react to the previous weekend's games every Tuesday on Wednesdays. GM Street is back to give a midweek look at what has transpired and what to expect in the next round. Kevin Clark, Robert Mays, and Danny Kelly are back at it on Thursdays with a deep dive into the upcoming weekend slate of games. And to wrap up the week with Mike Lombardi and Tate Frazier returning for GM Street's Friday Focus on the Ringer NFL Show feed. So subscribe to the Ringer NFL Show and Bill Simmons Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Art19, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about a couple of these uh, injuries because hopefully these guys could come back. Uh, We are recording this on Tuesday. Lowry uh, has acute back spasm, and he is going to be uh, reevaluated today. Hopefully the Raptors can get good news on them because as we chronicled last week, they have been a great story in the NBA, how the way they've changed their team and uh, how good they've been. Tony Parker, who missed the first 19 games of the season already with a quad surgery, uh, sprained his ankle again. No real timeline on him yet, uh, or sprained his ankle um, and said it was bad luck. And then, obviously, since we last spoke, Kawhi Leonard with the shoulder issue, um, which just sucks because, I mean, he's clearly one of the best five guys in the NBA. Lost him for the playoffs last year. Uh, when it mattered most, and now this year have just gotten to see very, very little of him. And I mean, Pop was saying he is just he's just starting to come back into form. Obviously, it takes a long time. Uh, once you have been out for an extended amount of time, and especially off your legs, um, doing hard work and and getting the conditioning right for an extended amount of time, it felt like he was starting to catch his bearings. And now out with the shoulder injury, here's hoping that. He'll be able to come back, but this is this has been hell since last spring for Kawhi for sure. Their season, if Kawhi misses playoff time, obviously their their season's over. 
But the fact is, is that it's depressing that Kawhi has only played eight games, only eight games, and we're almost midway through January. It's disappointing, but at the same time, I think we touched on this a couple weeks back where Spurs are still fun to watch. <laughs> They're still a fun team. I mean, last night, Bertans went off 28 points off the bench, just draining threes from everywhere. Um, they, they always seem to get contributions from guys like Brandon Paul and Bertans and LaMarcus Aldridge has become more like the guy he was in Portland this season. They're still fun to watch, but hopefully Kawhi can get back healthy for them at some point later in the season. Yeah, You know what it made me think of the other night? Obviously, they signed Rudy Gay in the offseason, and they've got some wing players on that team. They've always got good players on the Spurs. But it did remind me of the whole Jonathan Simmons thing, which given the contract that he got, I, I still am kind of surprised that they didn't bring him back. He'd be filling in in that Kawhi role for sure so far this year. And he's been, I don't know. I mean, he got money, but it wasn't like an extraordinary amount of money in the offseason. And I, I am kind of surprised that that he's not on that team anymore, given the leap that he seemingly took last year, especially during the playoffs. The funny thing with Jonathan Simmons is he's a guy who a lot of people like, and for good reasons, his ability to score from different levels, his ability to defend, his energy. But at the same time, he's another one of those guys where he's just not a potent three-point shooter. He's just not. He shoots 32% from three over his entire career. And And I wonder... If you're San Antonio, who has the best shooting coach in the world, and Chip England, if you're that team and you weren't able to turn him into an effective three-point shooter, I wonder if that factored into your decision. Because granted, you know San Antonio still doesn't shoot a lot of threes. Maybe they didn't value him in the potential playoff situations because of the lack of spacing he might provide. He needs to come a long way as a shooter still. And if he wasn't able to do it in San Antonio at, at 28 years old, I'm not sure I'd have a lot of faith in him doing it now either. That's fair. I don't know if that was a potential reason or not regarding Simmons that they looked at him and said, it, uh, well, it, he it might have just been all money. Yeah, because I mean, they haven't they, they haven't exactly put a massive premium on shooting threes. Right. We have said they are one of the bottom five in the league in terms of shooting that shot. I mean, hell, look at Tony Parker. I mean, the guy's been there for 20 years, right? I mean, <laughs> they've gone this long without Tony. I mean, Tony Parker is not a big-time three-point shooter by any means. He is a guy that kills you inside the three-point line and has his whole life. Funny thing is, is like a guy like Parker even, he's somebody who at least became kind of a reasonable threat on spot-up threes mm-hmm. over the course of his career, whereas early early on he used to basically just live in the mid-range. Mm-hmm. He's at least turned himself a little bit more into more of a threat from that range. He's still, I mean, again, he's only played 17 games this year. He shoots less than one a game. Yeah. Just not his mode of operation. The thing with San Antonio is, despite the fact they take so few threes, uh, they rank 27th in three-point frequency this season, they still shoot more than they did last year. There's 22 teams shooting more threes than they did last season. And there's 18 teams that shoot over a third of their shots from three compared to eight last season. And, and, and I wonder if that sustains heading into next season where you see about two thirds of the league shooting about a third of their shots from three or will more and more teams continue shooting more. Will San Antonio still be near the bottom of the league in three point attempts, but kind of get bumped up to that third of their attempts being from three. I don't know, but it's interesting to me that it's really essentially doubled almost every season. And I wonder if it continues to, or when does it stop though? When does it sustain? I think what has also doubled is the amount of mediocre basketball teams. 
<laughs> I would argue that, like I said, right? You can't all be Houston. Houston's got the goods to do it. The Warriors have the goods to do it. It's less about a style of play and accentuating what you have on your roster. You mentioned that they're able to do it, right? But how much of that is you're able to not shoot a lot of threes because your defense is so great. The Spurs are second in defensive rating. The Wolves were horrific early in the season from defense, but their defense has since been really, really good this past month or so. How much can you live in the mid-range unless you have a terrific defense? Uh, I, I feel like it goes that way, too. Well, that's the thing. It's not all mid-range. Like I said, going to the basket, getting into the bonus, because that has been a traditionally undervalued thing. The ability to get to the line and the impact it has by a guy having a guy that draws fouls on your team and goes to the line regularly. And so there are causes and effects to being able to play basketball. It's not all, hey, I'm taking elbow jumpers or I'm taking a three. I should take a three instead, right? It's functioning as a basketball team, and I think there's a lot of teams and a lot of players that have no business shooting nearly as many threes as they as they currently do. Shooting more mid-range doesn't mean getting more at the rim, though. This stat is from cleaning the glass. The top five teams that shoot the highest frequency of mid-range jumpers. One, Sacramento. Two, New York. Three, Minnesota. Four, San Antonio. Five, Washington, right? Okay, those are the top five teams that take the highest frequency of mid-range attempts. But at the rim, those teams rank 30th, 21st, 23rd, 28th, 29th. Like shooting more mid-range jumpers does not always equal more at-rim opportunities. Sometimes it's the teams that shoot the most from three-point range, sometimes and not all cases, or shoot a higher rate from three-point range that get to the rim a ton. Or, But in other cases, it's like there's no correlation at all. The, the Lakers take the most at-rim shots in the league. Then the Clippers are second. And then Memphis is third. I think it's almost a, a stylistic thing that doesn't even relate to mid-range in some ways. I, I think the spacing provided from three can help get you there as well. It's fascinating about that because three of those teams are good. Washington's good. San Antonio's good. Minnesota's good. I mean, those are three really good teams. And they're in the top five. Put it this way. There's different ways to do it, right? Not every team has to take it to the extreme obscene levels of shooting three point uh, three pointers like Houston. You don't have to do that. They're almost an independent case where you just need to look at that team differently than you do others. Maybe that's the way it should be. Cause um, when you look at the entire league as a whole, cause they do play differently from everybody else. Brooklyn is maybe the closest to them. I believe in three point rate. Now Cleveland, the second Brooklyn's third, but I know Brooklyn, at least talking to Kenny Atkinson from my Nets, Nets article, would like to see them shoot more threes. And I do wonder if more head coaches across the league feel the same way. You have all these different teams that play all different ways. And I think part of it's your personnel, right? When your two best guys are Jimmy Butler and Carl Towns, it's unsurprising that you, <laughs> right, <laughs> that, you take a, that you take a lot of shots inside the three-point line. I tell you this, I watch games with, with DeMarcus Cousins, and there are people that will say, it's great that he's added a three to his whatever, right? And I look at it, and I say, God, that's the best thing that can happen. Best thing that can happen. If, if I'm another team, that's exactly what I want. The last thing I want is that joker within five feet of the basket, and every time we clank a shot, he's grabbing the rebound. And you also forego 
offensive rebounding when you have a guy like that. But then if he's crashing the offensive boards, you might get transition offense chances after transition offense chances if he's not getting back on defense, which, by the way, he doesn't do all the time anyway. He doesn't get always get back on the defensive end of the floor. I think with Boogie, you want him shoot threes. It's what makes it's what helps make him into one of the game's greatest players today because of his ability to shoot threes and attack from that far out. He's unbelievable, man. I sit there and look, thank God. That's what I'm telling you. If you are the opponent, I would much rather have DeMarcus Cousins 30 feet away from the basket on a regular. That's fine. And he's shooting a lot of threes. I mean, he's, and he's shooting them at a good clip this year. He's certainly got the ability to do it. Look, I mean, it's all about situation and context. Like, that. that's everything, right? I don't think you want a DeMarcus Cousins post-up with 17 seconds on the shot clock. You don't want that. But you probably do want that if there's seven seconds left on the shot clock. I mean, situation is absolutely everything. So a boogie isolation or a boogie post-up, whether that's good or bad or less good or less bad, depends on time and situation, what happened prior to that play. I mean, there's, there's, this, this is the tough part with numbers. There's so much context and so many variables that with public data, it can't be weighed properly. So you can look at isolations and see that Boogie scores 0.8 points per possession, but a lot of those possessions, perhaps, you know, for maybe for him, maybe for other players, could be in end of clock situations where that 0.8 was the best thing you got on the floor. So to your point, Chris, it's still important, but also it all depends on when you're doing it, though, as well. Let me get to a couple other things real quick. The Wojnarowski article that came out yesterday on ESPN. Uh, let's just bust through these real quick because he kind of talked about the trade deadline and threw out some uh, rumors and notes. The Lakers have made clear that they are willing to move off of Jordan Clarkson, Larry Nance, Julius Randle. Any of those names surprise you in terms of the Lakers being able to move off of them? Uh, I know I heard Nance was someone who they kind of had as unavailable during the summer. So it's interesting that now he's suddenly available. Um, I'm, I'm, cur- I'm curious to know how much perhaps the value has changed, though, because if he's somebody who was off the table during the summer and now he's a couple months later on the table, I wonder if perhaps the demand for him might be a little bit too high than what you might expect for Larry Nance Jr. So I, I think even though some of these guys are on the block, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are super available because it all depends on how they value the player compared to other teams. Well, Clarkson's the big one, right? Because... He's got a lot of money uh, left, and you know they want to be a major player in free agency. I like Jordan Clarkson, too. I like him. I think he could help a really good team, right? I think he's the kind of guy, I mean, I I, I don't want him as my starter, but coming off the bench, I could see Jordan Clarkson turning into a get-buckets guy. Hey, solid. Solid player. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Atlanta, Bazemore, Ilyasova, Bellinelli. Want any of them? Boy, Bazemore's contract. Woof. Yesterday on the podcast I was on talking to on Wolves Wire, they mentioned Marco Bellinelli as someone like would make sense for the Wolves. We talked earlier about their lack of shooting, this, you know, add another wing with Bellinelli. He's someone that I think could be interesting. You know, he's a good three point shooter. He's a solid overall player. He can get you buckets off the bench. He can space the floor. He can make the right play. He's someone that would interest me, especially because he's a, a short term guy. I think for Baysmore, you look at the amount of money left on his deal. 18 million next year, and then a player option for the following season at 19.3 million. That's a heck of a lot of money. I, I think Bellinelli uh, is a upcoming free agent. He's the guy that I would target as a wing player who can shoot threes for your team. 
All right, and the last one, and this was fascinating. Nikola Mirotic, I mean, he's been their best player. I mean, he has changed their season. Well, I mean, <laughs> like, he's better than Michael Jordan. <laughs> I know. He is better than Michael Jordan. The Nikola Mirotic statue, I'm told, is being constructed, but they may have to just <laughs> they, they may have to just stop constructing it if they're really going to trade him. When I read that, I was like, why? Why don't we just put the statue on the moon? <laughs> I mean, it's just not part of future plans? Our value is it at the highest right now? I mean, Nikola Mirotic has been, he's been fantastic for them, right? Like, why are they trading him? Because it's probably not real. I, I don't want to sell high on this dude. It's inconceivable that he'll continue to shoot 46.5% from three. I mean, he's, he's always been an inconsistent streaky shooter. <laughs> I mean, he might be better than Michael Jordan, but he's not actually better than Michael Jordan. So it, it, it's the type of thing where you get to sell high while you can. If, if you're Chicago and if he does get dealt, I, I believe Woj or some, I think it was Woj mentioned that Utah had interest in Meritich. It'll be interesting to see what Chicago gets for him, considering his level of play since he returned from injury. And he's doing it in 25 minutes a game, Kev. 17.7 rebounds, 23 PER, shooting 49% from the field and 47% from three. I mean, well, you want to know the real reason why, Chris, why you would want to trade Miritich? Because it's the tank, baby. You got a tank. And right now you're not doing it. You're missing out potentially on your chance at a franchise changing player. If you're the Bulls because of Nikola Miritich having a hot streak. He's screwing you. You got to get rid of him before it's too late. Get rid of him. You must right, get yeah, back to the top of the lottery standings and change your franchise. He's helping them win. Leapfrog too much. the Memphis yeah. Grizzlies. Leapfrog yeah. Memphis. Get yeah. ahead of them. Yeah, you know what? You know what? I, you know what? I was going to leave you alone on this because I thought it was very fascinating <laughs> that um, this past week, you know, we started off by talking about the two players that you wrote about in the past week, right? Both exceptionally high. Lottery picks, if I recall correctly. Oh, you're going to mention Booker. <laughs> Jim, Jimmy Jimmy Butler changing a franchise and Devin Booker coming into his own. Come on, I thought, man. I thought it was fa- – no, it's fine. I, I was fascinated. We- Those are both huge draft picks, right? Like they were both – what were they? Were they, were they? Did they go one and two? Dude, we, we went through this on pods <laughs> on Twitter. We went through this on Twitter where, guess what? The high, you can find great players from anywhere in the draft, but guess what? The highest percent chance, undeniably, undeniably, to find the necessary Hall of Fame caliber talent that you need to win a title is at the top of the draft. Undeniable. Hey, Undeniable. Maybe. Undeniable, Chris. Hey, and if you get super lucky, you can get the next Andrew Wiggins. You can get the number one pick yeah. and get yeah. Andrew. <laughs> You're right. But here's the thing, right? Franchise thing. Every draft is different. And I think it's unfair when drafts are compared to every draft, right? I think every draft is different and needs to be compared to drafts that were of a similar look, a similar feel prior to the actual draft, right? So last year's draft was comparable to like 99, I believe, was the year. Uh where like the top 10 was just loaded and that's kind of what it's looking like. Right. I think with this year's draft, the top five is just jacked the top six or so. So there's an opportunity there, man. Not all those guys are going to turn into superstars, but there could be one or two that do and maybe more. Well, here's hoping that the bulls move Miritich. So they have the opportunity to get one of those next great players. This is like a major league thing, right? Miritich is helping them win too much. So we got to trade him. 
<laughs> oh yeah, it, it was 1999. I wrote an article a couple months back where one talent evaluator compared the 2017 top 10 to 1999. That year only had one bust in the top 10. And then Brian Colangelo made a comment where he said there were there were five to six surefire all-stars in the top 10 of the 2017 draft. And I think 2018 could be of similar quality near the top with guys like Luka Doncic, DeAndre Ayton, Mo Bamba, Michael Porter, Trey Young's throwing himself in there, Marvin Bagley. There's so much talent up top. I'm, le- I'm less convinced than you. One of the great ones has a like a busted back, right? Yeah, Michael Porter. Yeah, we're not getting to see him. Oh, and the other one that is very highly rated, and I don't, I don't even want to start this fire right now, but I watched the videos, and I am very impressed with Luka Doncic. I also cannot deny that there is a fear that I have regarding international wing players. The track record is just not good. You have, you know, you got a couple point guards here and there. You got Ginobili, who is obviously the very end of the draft, but Generally, you've got size, right? Whether it is a Porzingis or whether it's a Jokic or whatever. But we have not seen a lot of the outstanding international wing players come over and fulfill their great potential. That's what I'd say. And he may be the one. It appears when I watch him that he very well could be. But it has not been an easy go. And there have been more failures than there have been great successes regarding that. Once upon a time, Everybody in the free world thought Hazonia was going to be great. That is obviously not meant to be. And and this guy could be the total outlier. I'm just saying that it's not. There have been good players, really good players, but there have not been superstar. Most of these guys we have seen have been freaks of nature, like a Dirk, like a Porzingis, or they've been the big guys, like a Jokic or like the Gasol brothers or whatever. It's a different level of athleticism in the NBA, and sometimes you don't look the same as you do in those international tapes. That's all I'd say. Charks, uh, Jonathan Charks had a wonderful article today on TheRinger.com that hit on Luka Doncic and Trey Young, the Oklahoma point guard who looks like the college version of Stephen Curry. Just talking about them is kind of the some of the players that grew up watching Steph Curry and his influence on his game. That's something people should check out on TheRinger.com today. Oh, God. I mean, listen, Trey Young, is he's as fun to watch as, as anyone He's he's ridiculous. And, you know, I told you I love the kid at Bama. I love Colin Sexton. I, I was big on him. Yeah. And obviously Bagley, is he's unbelievable. And the track record of Duke wings now, when you have Parker and then you have Ingram and now you have Tatum, I mean, Coach K's pretty well hit on these guys. The recent track record's pretty damn good. You know, these one-and-dones at Duke that are really impressive to you. Well, I mean, let's let's forget about Jalil. <laughs> we can pump the brakes on him <laughs> yeah with the rest of them kevin it's one of my favorite times of the week thanks brother i'll talk to you next week me too chris talk to you next week all right bro. thanks for listening to another ringer nba show give us a rating and review on itunes if you dig what you're hearing and we will talk to you next week yeah!